Hello and welcome to Boiled Down. I'm your host, Greg Astley, or the Director of Government Affairs. Before we get started with our interview today, just a couple of quick housekeeping items. Coming up on November 11th, the Returning Veterans Project, in partnership with the Portland Kitchen Cabinet, is doing Chow Down for Vets. This is the second year that we'll be doing it, and participating restaurants will be donating a portion of their proceeds or specific dishes uh, to the Chow Down for Vets program, which helps post-9-11 veterans and their families with mental and physical health issues. Orla is proud to be a part of this project with the returning veterans folks. Also, on December 11th, a combined policy committee and lottery subcommittee meeting is planned. Location to be announced, but we'll be discussing the upcoming lottery contract, as well as our 2020 legislative agenda. Today, you'll hear my interview with Ruth Miles and Trevor Leahy of the Oregon Secretary of State's Office of Small Business Assistance, and we're talking about scary stories for small business. But first, we want to make sure you're getting the most out of your membership, and to help you do that, we'd like to highlight a benefit that you may or may not be aware of. Did you know members get access to Orla's limited health and wellness plan with Avance Health? Oil members are saving on payroll taxes and increasing take-home pay for their employees through this new program. You can visit OregonRLA.org slash Avance Health, that's A-V-A-N-C-E Health, where you can fill out a simple census to see how much you could be saving. If you're not a member, visit OregonRLA.org where you can join and start taking advantage of those numerous benefits that we offer. And now our Scary Stories interview. So I'm very excited to introduce our guests, Ruth Miles, Corporation Division Director and Tribal Liaison, and Trevor Leahy, Small Business Advocate from the Oregon Secretary of State's Office of Small Business Assistance. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks. So just real quick, I want to read the mission for the Office of Small Business Assistance because I think that's important framework as we go forward with the questions. And so the mission is twofold. First, to provide basic information and connection with resources to those starting, growing, or winding down a business. Second, to assist entrepreneurs who believe they've been subject to unreasonable or unfair state regulatory actions, which includes investigations, excessive fines, penalties, threats, or other enforcement by a state agency. So with that in mind, who qualifies as a small business? And Trevor, we'll start with you. So for purposes of our office, a small business is any business that has 100 or fewer employees, including zero employees. We don't take into account how long a business has been operating. We don't take any revenue into account. So a business with zero employees that is still considering going into business is still going to be our customer. Okay. So that's interesting. Ruth, did you want to add something? Yeah. There? A quick addition to that is that the office can work with businesses that are nonprofit or for-profit. So okay. whether or not they're organized for gain isn't really a consideration for the office. Great. Well, that's interesting. So how many small businesses a year do you think you guys help? Well, we do track our caseload using a case management system. So since our office has been in existence, 2014, we have closed 4,184 cases as of yesterday. So far, we've closed 875 this year. Wow. That's probably an underestimate considering the uh, phone calls that we get where it's going to be a matter of 
really one call resolutions, someone just calling to get a quick answer. Uh, we don't always make a case out of those. Okay. So you have everything from a very simple, I can answer this over the phone to you, to where you may have to open up a case file and could last, what, months? For sure. Yeah. I, I'd say, and, and I'm, I'm hoping Trevor hasn't had this experience yet, but as the former small business advocate, um, I did have a case or two that went over the year mark and, wow. you know, it was a little distressed. So I think the longest one that I ever had was about a year and a half, really complex policy um, case where um, sort of the goalpost kept moving. Is there an average time then in, in your opinion? I mean, is it, is it like three weeks, three months? It really depends on the issue. Yeah, uh, we get such a variety of questions, problems, complaints. I don't know that there is a real solid average. Okay, uh, it just depends on the issue. But I think that, as a matter of personal pride, we'd like to resolve every one of our issues within days or weeks. Months, in my opinion, is unusually long for yeah. us. Okay, great. Well, and so, uh, I don't know, you may not have the answer to this one either, but then generally speaking, what seems to be the most common hurdle uh, for small businesses that come, when they come to you with an issue? Most of the questions we get in our office are questions from entrepreneurs looking to start a business and asking for help understanding the process, whether it's starting a food truck, whether it's starting a massage business, whether it's starting an Etsy store. We never know what we're going to get, mm -hmm. and oftentimes we're one of the first points of contact. So, I'd just add that there's a range of sophistication among business owners, as they're calling, or at least uh, maybe uh, hopeful entrepreneurs. So sure. when some of them are pre-concept, some of them are at proof of concept, but they haven't really organized a structure around that, every once in a while somebody will call and you'll find out they've been doing business for nine months, 10 months, maybe longer. And they just found out that they were supposed to do some other stuff to formalize <laughs> that structure right. around the business they've been running the whole time. So um, that that also adds a lot of variety to the calls, right? It does. So as part of that that mission, then, that that's probably that connection uh, or the basic information and connection to resources piece. Is that is that fair to say? Absolutely. And, okay. and um, I'll step out here and say that as somebody who uh, had a business and, and ran a business for many, many years, and that was my livelihood, and I, I didn't work for state government, um, I would have loved to have somebody to call and say, hey, random question, who do I talk to about this? Sure. Um, regardless of whether or not it had something to do with the operations of my business, but to just be able to ask a question about, wait, I don't understand what just happened to me, or I don't, am I supposed to do something here? Somebody told me something and I'm not really clear on why that is. Uh, and to be able to ask that question in a confidential atmosphere and to be able to ask it for free, um, boy, I would have loved, loved, loved to have that. Sure. Well, not everybody has the experience of a mentor. Uh, so in some ways, I mean, I guess you guys really fulfill that role then because you are able to give people advice and guidance and, you know, direction to a certain extent, right? I mean, if you're answering questions, it helps them to, to follow the, the rules that they need to follow, which is you're not always aware of as a new business owner or a, or a emerging business owner. Correct. And to an extent, that's true. We are a staff of four and we serve the entire state. 
So we don't have the resources to provide one-on-one mentorship. We can't provide enough uh, business education for someone to develop a business plan. We can't walk them through that process. That is where we need to kind of refer them to other resources. We also can't give legal advice or financial advice. Sure. So we can identify the hoops that they'll need to jump through and we can kind of help them navigate through those hoops, but we can't make decisions for them or even tell them how to decide something. We can just tell them, Hey, this is a decision point and you will need to make a decision on which way to go from here on. Yeah. But as Ruth mentioned, I mean, I was a small business owner for a number of years too. And, and starting out, you you do have a lot of questions and, and even having somebody tell you, this is a decision point, uh, could be an important milestone for you in, in which direction you go and whether or not you're headed down the right path. Absolutely. And, and the office really is, um, a portal to discovery. Really, um, they have a network of influencers and technical assistance providers and um, folks that are involved in the the capital markets across the state and to some extent, you know, past that. And the reason that they develop that network is so that they can plug businesses into that as they have questions or plug entrepreneurs into that so that folks know, hey, you know, when you're starting a business, you should have a business plan. Right. Uh, that's a really, really important thing. There's a ton of reasons why. And rather than go into all of the reasons why having a business plan is super, super important to you having even a, a Nat's chance of success, they're going to try and connect you with what is the most appropriate technical assistance for who you are and where you're located, what industry you're in. So that could be anything from OMEP to small business development centers to SCORE or any number of um, other organizations that are really specific to the communities where they're located. Um, and the same thing's true with capital. And so um, when Trevor's saying, you know, hey, we can't do these things, we can't give you legal advice, we can't give you financial advice, that's absolutely true. But they can and do give legal information, information that helps you as a business owner be equipped to make the decision that you need to make, to A, know you need to make it, and to get all the information. And if they can't provide you the information, they're going to make sure that they connect you with someone who can. That's great. Yeah, and so important for small businesses. I mean, so many of them go into it thinking they know what they're doing. Uh, in our industry, on the restaurant side in particular, we we always talk about it. it's a very low barrier to entry, right? I mean, if I have my grandmother's lasagna recipe and people like it, I think, oh, I'll just open up a restaurant, right? Uh, not understanding things like, you know, restaurant inspections or having to go through a business plan and, you know, how many seats do I have to fill and how much do I have to sell that lasagna at in order to make a profit or even break even and, and pay my suppliers. And so um, a lot of times the passion overtakes the practical in our in our world. And having somebody like you in the in the office of small business advocates to, like I said, help with that guidance, I think would be invaluable. And I would say that starting a restaurant is probably one of the more complicated first-time <laughs> ventures you can land on. Sure. Yeah. Well, we, we see that all the time. So, um, and so it's, uh, it, again, it's great that you guys are, are there. Um, as a newer agency, do you say, would you, would you say you have it pretty dialed in uh, as to what the needs of the small businesses are and what your programs are that you offer? Or are you, you still evolving and learning? So let me take this one because I don't want to clarify that 
the advocacy office is not an agency. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's important for me to let your listeners know that uh, the legislature didn't create a whole big, giant, very expensive bureaucracy to help businesses with bureaucracy. It's really important that we pass along the fact that um, Secretary of State at that time found savings from within their existing uh, resources to create this office and that the legislature's part of this was really primarily statutory. And so this office is seated within Secretary of State so that they can... Uh, investigate state agencies or other units of government, they don't investigate Secretary of State. So if you called Greg and you said, hey, I got a problem with Trevor Leahy, I need somebody to investigate it. Well, nobody's going to be able to do that at Secretary of State. Well, there, there is another option, but uh, but this office isn't it. Yeah. But this office can say, yeah, Greg, I'll investigate your problem with the Department of Revenue or um, Osbeals or the CCB. Um, or Department of Ag, uh, because they're not part of the executive branch. So they don't even indirectly work for the governor. So it's a little easier for them to um, scrutinize the executive branch, understanding that there may be um, moments when they have to make recommendations or perhaps criticize an agency's actions. So um, for them, it's really important that they're outside of that. Mm -hmm. So the Secretary of State as a constitutional office is outside of that branch, and that gives this office a whole lot of maneuvering room. It protects the people that call them and ask for help. It protects the people who work in the office, and it protects the work that they do. So as an agency, Secretary of State is probably one of the oldest agencies because it's a constitutional office, but this little piece of it is only five and a half years old and and change. Well, it's not so little, but this this office is a little bit more than five and a half years old. So legislature passed this enabling legislation in 2013. The office actually started operations and opened up to help business in January 2014. It's been going continuously since then. But it started out as just uh, only investigate state agencies. So if a business has a problem with somebody who's at local government level, then they're just out of luck. Mm. Unless there's a local business advocate. Uh, like there is in Portland, there's one in Bend. But but um, over the years, the mandate grew to include local government. Um, and so uh, we do work closely with folks in Portland if there's a case there or in Bend where there's a business advocate. A lot of referral back and forth, for sure. But um, this office has the ability now to encompass concerns at that level, which is kind of a cool thing. Also codified was the ability to help nonprofits. Mm. So the legislature has continued to make um, little adjustments to these uh, statutes for the office to make sure that they have the flexibility they need, that uh, the confidentiality is really solid there. That's great. So... um do you think that the programs or the um, what you're offering, do you think that uh, you guys are, are pretty dialed in at this point or does it continue to evolve as you, yeah, as you, as new questions are raised? I don't think that we are going to be serving our customers if we ever stop evolving. I think we need to continue evolving based on changing industries, changing technologies, changing legislation. We need to continue to be adaptive to that. And if we ever reach a point where we think, yeah, we got this dialed in, we probably aren't doing our jobs knowing what small businesses need. Yeah. Okay, great. So um, what are the top 
areas of concern that small businesses seek your assistance for? I mean, it, it looked like maybe, you know, licensing was one area, taxes was another. Is that, is that are those the top two in, in your opinion? They are. Uh, obviously, not everything falls splendidly into a single category. Sure. But for the most part, licensing and a lot of the questions we get regarding how do I start a business end up involving some type of licensing. So a lot of those questions do end up in the licensing category. We do get a lot of questions about taxes. How do I pay taxes? Am I liable for taxes? I got a crazy tax bill in the mail. What do I do with this? And it's our job to help understand the regulations, understand the requirements, and when possible, translate a scary letter into English and help them understand what needs to happen in response to that letter. Yeah. We're going to get to those scary letters and scary stories in just a minute. Um, But you mentioned the taxes. (laughs) And um, so uh, we have a corporate activities tax coming up. January 1st, 2020. Uh, you guys, I'm sure, have been studying up on that, although we haven't gone through the rulemaking process yet. But um, do you anticipate that you'll be getting inquiries from businesses about the corporate activities tax? I anticipate that, yes. For now, we do have a very good working relationship with the Oregon Department of Revenue. They have information on their website, and we refer people to that only because nothing is final with yeah. it yet. We don't know exactly what the end product is going to look like or how it's going to affect small businesses. So for right now, we just have to rely on the information that we have from the experts at the Department of Revenue and pass that along to our customers when they have questions of us. Yeah. Great. Well, that's going to be very much appreciated because, uh, as I mentioned, rulemaking still has to take place, and yet the tax is going into effect January 1st. So um, we know we're going to see some scary stories coming out of that. And speaking of which, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about some of those stories. So stay tuned. As a member, you have access to exclusive solutions, including healthcare discounts from United Healthcare on select group medical and specialty benefit plans an association health plan option for small businesses, and a free pharmacy discount card administered through OptumRx that helps employees and their families save up to 75% on all FDA-approved prescription medications. Find out more at uhctogether.com slash Orla. If you run a hotel in Oregon, summers are crazy. Super high occupancy, events, large groups. It can be really difficult to keep up on the routine maintenance stuff that needs to get done on property. Well, as we head into the fall, Summit Cleaning and Restoration would love to help you catch up on some of that stuff. Whether it's carpet cleaning, tile and grout cleaning, or maybe upholstery cleaning in some of your guest rooms or the lobby. Give us a call, 800-769-1553, and we can help you out. We'll get you on the calendar, and we can also tell you about our special Orla pricing. Welcome back to Boiled Down. My name is Greg Astley, Director of Government Affairs for the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association, and we are discussing scary stories, uh, specifically issues that small businesses have gone through and how the Secretary of State's Office of Small Business Assistance can help. And we have Ruth Miles and Trevor Leahy of the Oregon Secretary of State's Office of Small Business Assistance with us. So let's talk. Let's talk scary stories. So 
the Office of Small Business Assistance is actually confidential under statute, and we're not allowed to share any information about our caseload <laughs> with you without prior permission from our customers. So maybe we can get permission and come back. We'll just bleep it out. Anything that we can't, we'll just we'll just bleep it later. We'll redact it from the script. So. Um, now, Ruth, I know you and I have talked in the past about uh, a couple of stories uh, that you've shared and, and uh, just amazing, really, what some of the hoops businesses have to go through. And I'm, I'm thinking specifically of uh, a screen printer, I think it was, in Eastern Oregon mm-hmm. that you shared with. Uh, and I, I know you have, you have some confidentiality there, obviously, that we, we don't want to get into. But can you share kind of the, the gist of what happened in this situation? Yeah, a little bit. I can certainly tell you about what happened um, as the fallout from that. So we got a call from a legislator saying, hey, one of my constituents has a concern. Can you reach out and help them? And this was um, a company that did imprints, and they um, they had purchased some new equipment. They and uh, this was big equipment. So we're not talking about like a little sewing machine or something mm-hmm. like that. This was big industrial manufacturing equipment, really. And they paid cash for it. It was used when they purchased it, and paid cash for it. Got a bill of sale. Started paying personal property tax on it. Um, so they sort of added it to the inventory of equipment that they were paying personal property tax on. Eighteen months after they got this installed in their shop and started using it and paying taxes on it, they get a tax bill from the county where they purchased the equipment. And they don't have a physical nexus in that other county. And so they were trying to figure out why they would even receive it. And and uh, so they called the county and said, hey, you know, why are we, why are we getting this big giant <laughs> right. tax bill? And they said, oh, um, oh, this is about that equipment. And they said, well, you know, we're not in your county. And they said, oh, but you're the new owner of the equipment. So it turns out that Oregon statute allows counties which are responsible for collecting personal property tax which is tax on the stuff that you use in your business Mm -hmm. so if you're a restaurant it's your ranges and your ovens and so forth Um, it allows those counties if they can't collect from the responsible party to collect from the new owner of the equipment so I happened to actually speak about this case Uh, I was talking to a chamber group not too far from here and I said, hey, you know, so if you haven't paid your personal property tax bill, you might want to just just take a look at that. In fact, maybe even check if you have your CPA or a bookkeeper taking care of stuff like that for you. Maybe just double check because a lot of CPAs don't do personal property tax. Sure. And the reason why is that the personal property tax inventory list is A, not connected with your depreciation schedule because it's based on real market value. And it, it's supposed to include everything right down to the paper clips. Like it, it gets kind of silly yeah. in my view, but you're supposed to count everything. And uh, as long as it's not inventory. So if you're selling inventory, that's one thing. But but if you, you know, your store fixtures, if you're in a retail space or in a restaurant, you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. It's the dishes. It's everything you use to make money. Just not the food that you're selling. Sure. So uh, I, I make this comment at the end, and I say, yeah, let me know if something comes up and you have any concerns. And, and a business owner came up to me afterwards, and he is a restaurant owner. I've, I've been in his place, just neat guy, great food. And he said, yeah, I, this may be an issue for me. And I said, okay, well, why don't you check and let me know? And sure enough, I heard back from him a few days later, and um, 
it, he was in a relatively new space and um, somehow this had slipped through the radar and uh, so it hadn't been paid. And so his uh, his case gave me a, a real opportunity to dig into this a little bit more in a different way than I had with the other case. With the other case, we were able to pass some legislation. I'll tell you about that in a second. Sure. But with this guy's case, I had to figure out if there was a way to get the penalties forgiven mm. on this. And unfortunately, what I found out is that there is no room in the law to allow penalties to be waived or otherwise forgiven. So um, he had to deal with that. Now, frankly, it wasn't a big amount of money, and it was good that it just happened early on, and he yeah. was just able to like swallow hard, write the check, and chalk it up to you know this is this is tuition in the school of life. Right. I'm never going to make this mistake again. <laughs> I'm never going to let this pass by my radar again. So he's okay. He's fine. Um, with the other situation, uh, we worked with the county. We tried all kinds of things. This is before we had a local mandate. And you know, I reached kind of beyond where I should have been and, and said, hey, county, is there anything that you can do to work with us? Why are you wanting these folks to pay what was really um, about a $6,000 tax bill um, when it really – they didn't generate the tax. They didn't own the equipment at the time the tax was assessed. Right. And uh, – and, and they said, well, you know, we have a fiduciary responsibility to our county and we feel like we need to collect on amounts like this. And there's nothing that you can say to that except, okay. Right. And, um, and so the legislation that we got passed did a couple of things. Um, and it was the legislator who referred this case um, who's no longer in public life. But, um, but this was a really good, solid piece of legislation. And what it did uh, was really twofold. First thing... We'd had a problem. The business had said, you know what, we'll pay the base tax bill, but we're not going to pay penalties and interest because that's just ridiculous. Yeah. And so they they were willing to pay about 4000 and change uh, to this other county. And the county said, well, the law doesn't allow us to accept compromise payments. So... Um, so that offer was kind of dead in the water. So the legislation now allows counties to accept compromise payments. You can negotiate with them okay. to the extent that they're willing to negotiate with you. Yeah. And they get to choose, just like you get to choose in any negotiation. The second thing that legislation did is it offers business owners a due diligence path. So if you are going to buy um, a new range or maybe a used range for your new restaurant and you find a great deal in Baker City and so you're going to head out there and buy something from some liquidator out there, before you buy it, you got to say, hey, does this have any tax liability associated with it, this piece of equipment? Mm. And I need you to write me a letter and, and say – whether it does or not. Now, a lot of people who are in that business of liquidating restaurant equipment don't necessarily know about this law. So you may be the first person who tells them that. Yeah. If that happens, you can call Trevor's office. They've got a little <laughs> handy handout they can send out to the seller and to the buyer so everybody knows what their responsibilities and opportunities are under this law. But you essentially get from them a letter saying, yes, I do or don't know about any tax liability signed, you know, principal of the company that's selling this equipment. Mm. And if there's a chain of ownership, you know, this used to be owned by Mr. Lee at the Chinese restaurant that closed. And then before that, it was owned by somebody in Umatilla County. So you want to understand what counties in Oregon did this piece of equipment go through before you're now looking at it. 
And then you contact the county clerks or the, the tax assessor in each of those counties. So you Matilla and Baker and you say, hey, is there any tax debt associated with this range that I want to buy? It used to be the property of Mr. Lee. And before that, it was the property of somebody in Umatilla County. That's mm. all I got. Yeah. So they start looking through their records, and if they have active liens out, they'll tell you. And if they don't, they'll say in writing, you know, and that might be an email um, or it could be a letter. You can just ask for what you need, and, and they'll say, nope, we don't have anything for you. And then your third step to just finish that due diligence process is to go online to Secretary of State, which is sos.oregon.gov is the Secretary of State's website. You click on the business button and look for the UCC, Uniform Commercial Code. Okay. And you'll want to do a search of the UCC to find out if there's anything about that range or Mr. Lee mm. in Baker County. If you find nothing, no evidence of any tax liability in step one with the seller writing you the letter, step two, checking with the county or counties of ownership, and step three, checking in the UCC system, then you save that information and that's your due diligence. You can buy the equipment. And then if you get a tax bill 18 months later from Umatilla or Baker counties, then you can show them your due diligence documents and you do not have to pay. It hmm. is the biggest get out of jail free card I have ever seen pass wow. in legislation. That's great. So it's kind of an awesome thing. And very few people know about it. Here's the reason. The Department of Revenue doesn't talk about personal property tax. The statutes are theirs, and they're responsible for making kind of minute um, level interpretive um, information for, or they provide that sort of interpretation for counties that aren't sure about something. Um, but counties are the ones that are responsible for actually collecting the tax, and it's an important revenue stream for them. Sure. And so dinking around with that is something they're very, very sensitive about, but they were very much on board with this bill hmm. And helped pass it, frankly. Um, it was with their support that this due diligence passed because they wanted to see people have a fair shake at the opportunity to, to buy equipment that still has usable life left yeah. and, and not be penalized because somebody before them was you know, a bad actor right. and didn't pay their personal property or, or didn't know and didn't pay their personal property tax. So, so here's the lesson, kids. <laughs> the lesson is make sure your personal property tax is being paid. And here's the thing. If you own less than a certain amount of stuff, and I want to say it's like $15,000. Um, and I'm sorry, I don't have that exact no, number okay. for you, but I can certainly get it. Um, but if you have less than that critical amount of stuff, then there's not going to be a tax bill for you anyway. You just got to report that you have it. Mm-hmm. But if you get over that, and restaurants almost always do, sure. just because it's a capital-intensive industry, same thing with hotels, for yeah. sure. Always are going to be above that that uh, that point. And so they're going to have some sort of personal property tax bill. And so you just want to make sure if your CPA is not doing it or your bookkeeper is not doing it, that you're doing it just to make sure that it happens. Well, that's a, that's a great lesson because there are a lot of restaurants who – take over um, a piece of property, you know, take over a lease and a lot of the equipment is still there. And so uh, if the previous owner wasn't aware or wasn't paying the taxes, uh, that due diligence and, and the work that has to go into that can be very, very critical. So yeah. and we'll, we'll get you um, some information about that, Greg, so that you here at Orla can support your members sure. with a little bit more specifics about how to make that law work for them. Yeah, that'd be yeah. great. We'd, we'd love to pass that along. We're always looking for information to help out our members. So, 
Well, I know that uh, we talked a little bit about there was a lodging tax issue, and, and I won't go into the details on this one, but it was basically just a how do I pay my lodging tax. And so you guys also helped out with that. Somebody on your on your staff had, had helped with that one. But um, then you were just sharing at the break with us a little bit of a scary story about uh, cleaning and kind of how that uh, encompassed a lot more, I think, than it was intended to originally. And so maybe you can let us know a little bit about about that one. Sure. So has it already been more than a year since that went into effect? Did it go into effect 2018? I think it went into effect January 1st, 2018. Time flies. So January, so we would have gotten our first phone call about this in late November, early December, 2017. Okay. Someone called us out of the blue saying, hey, I'm having a problem getting this license for my janitorial company. And we'd never heard of this. Mm -hmm. We had been telling people up until this point, there's no license required for starting a janitorial company. They were able to provide us documentation that we did not know about Hmm. that said, yes, there is a new license. Legislation is going into effect January 1st that requires all janitorial companies to be licensed through BOLI, the Bureau of Labor and Industries. They had notified the public through letters that were mailed out in November that they needed to be compliant by December 1st. Mm. And we, we, we didn't know anything about this. So it turns out that it's true Anyone that at the time went out and did cleaning janitorial services as defined by the Census Bureau under the North American Industry Classification System, NAICS codes, anyone that sends people out, contracts to send people out, makes arrangements for sending people out to provide cleaning, must be licensed. And getting that license required pre-education, continuing education, reports on payroll, and many other things. Wow. Uh, Payroll reports had to be submitted every 35 days. So you couldn't even encapsulate it into quarterly payroll reports on your normal employees. Mm. You had to do separate reporting every 35 days. This was, in our opinion, unreasonable because so many people start cleaning companies because it is easy to start a cleaning company. You need a bucket and a washcloth, and you're ready to start cleaning. Sure. So having these requirements to get this property services contractor license, in our opinion, was something that needed a little bit more of a light shown on it. We contacted Bully and asked them some questions about, hey, what have you done to notify people? What's the process? What does it look like? And they did respond to our questions, but it's not something where the answers really provided great solutions. And to Bowley's credit, there were some changes 
immediately. The license requirements did go into effect January 1st, and then there was a short legislative session which changed some of the statutory requirements for the license right away. It did remove the reporting requirements. Okay. It eased some of the stuff back. But for the most part, if you are going to send anyone, have anyone helping you clean for a commercial company, if you are registered as an LLC, you have to get this license still. Mm. You have to go through pre-license education. You have to take a test. They did make the test available online. It is closed book online. I wouldn't do very well then. That's a, uh, <laughs> And it does cost a few hundred dollars. I want to say in the $300 okay. range to get this license. And there are still so many businesses out there that don't know about this yeah. requirement. And it's... It's still so new, and it's still so outside the scope of public knowledge. We have a meeting with the team from Boley that administers this program tomorrow Hmm. so that we can find out, is our messaging correct? Do we have all the tools? Has anything changed? Do you anticipate any changes? And we're going to spend hours with them talking about what are they doing? What can we do? How can we partner to get the word out about this new license that is a surprise to those in the industry? Yeah. Well, I don't envy you that meeting, but it's important work that you're doing. So thank you for taking that on. It's, uh, that's incredible. Uh, sometimes the, the stuff that uh, doesn't get communicated uh, well enough. The intent of the license isn't to regulate janitorial work. It is to make sure that those in the janitorial services industry know how to be good employers. The education, the testing covers minimum wage. It covers harassment-free work environments. It doesn't have anything to do with the business of cleaning. Okay. So general business knowledge and legislation maybe that's passed that you would need to know about as a, as an owner operator, it sounds like. For sure. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And of course we see a lot of changes, uh, every legislative session, uh, you know, we just passed paid family and medical leave. And previous to that, of course we'd had scheduling and paid sick leave, uh, minimum wage increases. So, um, it sounds like it was well-intentioned, but maybe the execution wasn't exactly where it needed to be to, to get people that kind of information. So, um, well, that's great. That's interesting. And, and, uh, it sounds like, although it was scary to start with, uh, maybe it's, it's resolving itself, uh, in a little bit better way. So We're chipping away at the mountain. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. Um, well let's, let's switch gears one more time and, um, let's talk about, uh, the fact that you receive and investigate questions and complaints and that you, you work towards some sort of a resolution. And, and so what, what would constitute a threat? So we, we had a conversation about like, what did he mean by this question? <laughs> so um, I, I can tell you about one kind of threat um, that, that immediately came to mind. Um, our statutes for this office say there is no retaliation. Mm-hmm. So if a business contacts us and says, hey, I've got a problem, a concern, a complaint about 
XYZ agency, we go investigate XYZ agency, and maybe it's their fault, maybe it's not, but but we resolve the case. And then we get a call back from the business owner saying, hey, I believe I have been retaliated against mm. because you investigated this case and they know it's me. Yeah. So a couple of things about that. Um, a, it's it's forbidden by statute. Um, the statute doesn't have any teeth. There isn't um, like a specific series of ways that we can slap an agency on the hand if they're doing something like that. But what we do if a business owner believes that they've been retaliated against because they contacted our office and asked for assistance, um, then uh, we have a way of we, we reopen a case and we contact them and let them know that we're investigating them yet again. And this is the reason why. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've yet to find um, a case where there was actual retaliation that we can put, you know, two and two and two and two together and, and make six and say, yes, in fact, we can draw the conclusion that there was retaliation. Um, but it has been worth it to go back and do those investigations in every case because it puts agencies, it puts units of government on notice. And and I, I let me add to that. That local government, we've never had that complaint um, that I'm aware of, uh, where somebody has said, I've been retaliated against by my city or county. It's always been state agencies, and there's not a lot of it. Yeah. Uh, but when it happens, um, it's a pretty serious kind of thing um, on the part of the business owner to feel like they've been targeted because they asked for help from our office. And it's very serious. We take it very seriously in our office as well. And the other thing that I would want um, folks to know about the office is that there's an there's a ton of ways that we can investigate a complaint. Now it depends on the complaint, but um, often the office will receive a complaint from a business owner or an inquiry of some sort, and they'll go investigate that, and they will not pass along the name of the business owner who inist- uh, sorry instigated or initiated um, that complaint. So. If, if the agency doesn't need to know if we can work in generalities with them, mm-hmm. if this happened and if this happened and if I were here, then what would be your answer? And if we can get an answer from them that is definitive and they can say, okay, well, here's where it says this in statute. Here's where it says this in rule and we can really hang our hat on it. Then there's no need to pass along the information about the business. And so to the extent possible, um, the office has really tried to do business that way whenever they can. Because then, you know, you're protected. In addition to that, when there are things that require the office to pass along a business or nonprofit's um, name, um, then they are assured of confidentiality because the statutes have been looked at and looked at and looked at. Okay. The closest I've ever seen to something that may have been retaliatory mm-hmm. is uh, when someone files a complaint with us and we carry the body of that complaint to the agency and they initiate rulemaking to mm. change what ha- what's happened. I've seen that happen one time. Okay. And it really frustrated me. But in the end, the business owner got the end result they were looking for. So at the time, it was frustrating because when the agency initiated rulemaking, they they did it, I felt, to put up a roadblock for this business. But in retrospect, it turns out they cleaned up their rules mm-hmm. to avoid future complaints and 
the business ended up getting what they were originally asking for. So it turned out being a win-win that took way longer than I expected. Sure. Yeah. Well, no, nothing really moves quickly in government these days. So that's, well, especially <laughs> if it's rulemaking. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It, it's one of those misunderstood creatures. I don't know if you've talked about that in previous podcasts, but rulemaking, um, you know, rules have the force of law, but they're made by agencies, not by lawmakers. Yeah. And so um, sometimes you end up with, um, you know, what on first blush at least seems like squirrely stuff. Um, and, and so this office is always looking to make sure that an agency and their rulemaking authority is standing squarely on statute, that they're not reaching beyond that and creating a whole body of law that didn't exist in statute. Yeah, it is one thing that is becoming more and more prevalent as you look at legislation that passes and then you get into the rulemaking process. And I haven't seen it hijacked yet, but there are definitely efforts to kind of go back to either the supporters or the opponents to say, well, let's, let's look at what it was when we wanted it, you know, a certain way. And, and for the most part, I think agencies are very attuned to that to say, we're not here to, you know, re-legislate this. We're here to take a look at what's in front of us and, you know, clarify and, and more clearly define some things. But, um, it's definitely an opportunity for, um, abuse, I think, uh, if we're not careful. So, um, do you see significant differences in urban versus rural when you're, you're seeing a business that either starts up or is it fairly universal? Are there certain barriers unique to those? Yeah, I think so. And, I think that that just is chalked up to the diversity of urban versus rural. Uh, in my experience, when I travel to Eastern Oregon or rural communities on the coast, things are just a little more relaxed. The people there that are starting businesses know the people that are in City Hall. They know who's on the county seat. They know all the people that are there to apply local regulations. And so it's just more kickback, relaxed. In Portland, there's so many people that you don't know <laughs> sure. who's applying regulations to you. So I do think that there's a difference in terms of the ease and difficulty of setting up a business in a rural environment versus an urban environment. All the same laws are going to apply for the most part, but in rural communities, I do think it might be a little bit easier because you have that one-on-one -on -one relationship and it's easier to get FaceTime with someone than it is in the city. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's good to know. So for anyone calling or contacting the Office of Small Business Assistance, is there costs associated with that? I mean, is there a fee or anything that they'd have to pay? Not for calling us. We even have a toll-free phone number. That is 844-469-5512. That number rings at all four of our desks in the office. We don't have a phone tree. We do have someone whose job it is is to answer the phones, but if he's on another call or away from his desk, one of the other three of us are going to answer it. Uh, right. If we don't have the opportunity to answer the phone when you call us, you can leave us a voicemail. We generally return those as soon as we get back to our desks and check voicemails. Yeah. Usually it's same day, if not within about 10 minutes of the phone call. And people are they're astounded when we call back so quickly. It's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry, I was just on the other line. Sure. Uh, this is a direct reflection of the kinds of complaints that the office gets about 
other state agencies mm-hmm. or, um, you know, even in some cases, some small cities and counties where they call, they get stuck in a phone tree or they don't get anything and the phone just rings and rings and rings or they're stuck on hold in a queue mm-hmm. and they're getting messages periodically about what a valuable customer they are, <laughs> but they're not really ever getting to a human or, yeah. or any anything that can help them with what their issue is. And so... Um, one of the things that we tried to do systemically with this office is just avoid that complaint up front. And so everybody who works in the office has just really, really high customer service standards. And so I can promise you that if you can't get through to them, it's because they're on the phone with another business owner or they are meeting in person with another business owner. Um, and, uh, and they will get back to you with the same kind of service that they're showing that other business. That's great. Well, before we wrap up, what is there that you wish small businesses would know? What's the most common misnomer or what do you wish that they, that they knew so that it would either save you time or just save them the grief of having to deal with it? So I have two things because I think I have a most common misnomer and I have a biggest wish. Great. So my biggest wish for those that are going into business is that they spend more time researching and forming a business plan. I wouldn't I don't think it's unreasonable to spend at least 4 months planning, doing market research. There are free resources to help people do that. You can contact the small business development centers or SCORE to help form a business plan. You can contact the employment department's research division to get free market research for your area Mm. for your business. And that will open up so many doors. It is education on what you should expect as a business owner. It is way better to slow down rather than rush into starting a business. The biggest misnomer is that when you register your business with the Secretary of State, that is not the same as getting a business license. Mm. Business licenses are based on your trade and your location. So when you register with us, you still need to contact the Oregon Health Authority to get your restaurant license, your food handler's card, the Department of Agriculture if you're growing your own or Mm -hmm. storing as a warehouse. You also will need to contact your local government to find out what their business license requirements are. The Secretary of State doesn't issue them, and there is no such thing as a statewide business license. Good to know. Those are my two things. Ruth? Uh, I just have one thing, and it's totally selfish. I really just (laughs) wish that more businesses knew about the Office of Small Business Assistance. I wish they knew that there was this advocacy team. Um, You know, Trevor's been very modest, and I'm going to just completely abandon that and say that we have one of the most robust programs in the U.S. for this purpose. That I don't know of another state or province that has – four people staffed just to help small businesses and nonprofits with concerns they have about government at the state and local level. I just do not know of any. And I know from past experience that this office can really um, outwork some of the other really seasoned and mature ombudsman offices in the U.S. And so um, we we should be proud that we have this kind of resource. Um, And then the other thing, I guess, that's part of that is that Um, it's easy to say, well, you know, I don't really feel comfortable calling and telling you about this stuff that scares me, Mm -hmm. right? That's fair. That's totally fair. But here's the thing. If you don't call, 
if you don't say, and I'm just going to get over myself and I'm going to call them and I'm going to know that they're not going to tell anybody about it and they're not going to talk about it on the Orla podcast, then we won't know unless you call. We will not know about the problem. And Trevor's description of the property services contractor license for janitorial firms is a really good example of that where we can't follow all of the new license um, laws that are being made in the legislature. We just don't have the staff to Mm -hmm. do that. And when we find out after the case, we're just mad, madly trying to research. So the sooner we know about your problem, when your problem is small, when you don't think of it so much as a problem as um, an inconvenience, then that's the time to call. That's really the time to call. And maybe this is the step that saves you having to call your attorney or having to call your CPA, or maybe it helps you focus in on the conversation you actually need to have with those professionals. But um, if nothing else, know that every time you call this office and you report some concern that you've got, then you're saving and helping so many other businesses. Mm -hmm. I mean, we didn't talk a whole lot about the ripple effect when this office does some work, but I talked a little bit about that legislation for uh, personal property tax. And, you know, there are businesses and, and, and owners that I am never going to meet who were positively affected by that. And that's what the work of this office is supposed to do. It's supposed to, to be not just a quality check on state government and, and a helping hand for local government to catch those things that are important, but also um, be that uh, be that advocate for small business um, that can help even when you're not the person who calls. So so call, I guess, is I'm sort of contradicting myself. Call, call, call. Call that toll-free number. Um, send an email to business.sos at oregon.gov. Make sure you get in touch. Well, you're reading my mind because I was going to say, I think what you're saying is unselfishly when someone does contact the office, then it means that they're not just helping themselves but a lot of other people. And you, you referenced the legislation that was passed, and then you gave the contact information, which is what I was going to ask for next. So I think we're, uh, we're pretty good to go on that. Well, we're going to take another quick break, and we'll come back with the Advocacy Watch. As a member, you have access to exclusive solutions such as healthcare discounts from United Healthcare on select medical specialty benefit plans for groups of all sizes, including small, mid-size, and large businesses, plus an association health plan option for small businesses that offers both product and pricing flexibility, similar to large employers. Find out more at uhctogether.com slash Orla. All right. Welcome back. It's time for Advocacy Watch, and this is where we boil down some of the local, state, and national government affairs issues that you should be aware of. Today, we're going to talk about a series of food and beverage taxes that are being looked at or or proposed in different areas of the state, uh, including the city of Madras, which is considering a food and beverage tax for road repair. City of Pendleton, which has a street funding workshop on November 12th at 6.30 p.m. in the Pendleton City Council Chambers, also for um, also considering a food and beverage tax as well as an increase in the hotel lodging fee. And then Cannon Beach uh, is looking at a food and beverage tax to help pay for fire and police stations in the area. So we've got a couple of those coming up. In the Portland area, a four-day-long strike by Burgerville employees came to an end this last Sunday when the Burgerville Workers' Union said management agreed to renegotiate wage contracts. However, another strike could be on the horizon. 
The union and company executives are scheduled to meet for another bargaining session on November 5th, and the workers' union says it is ready to go on strike again if management does not present a better wage offer. Burgerville, however, said it would not renegotiate wages with the reunion, but that it would discuss the criteria by which employees move up the pay scale. A quote from Burgerville, Burgerville has clearly communicated to the union during bargaining sessions that the recently announced wage increase for all crew members is the company's last, best, and final offer. As a reminder, Burgerville is the first quick service restaurant in the country to have a union, and we'll be watching this story for further developments in the near future. Our listener question for this podcast is about service charges on credit cards and whether or not those can be taken out of the tips that are paid. And the answer is yes, as long as the amount that's being taken out of the tips does not exceed the amount of the service charge. So, for example, if you've got a credit card that has a service charge of 3.5%, you are not allowed to charge, say, a 5% service charge for that credit card. Um, but you can take that out of the tips at the amount that the credit card is charging you as a service charge or at an average if you are taking multiple credit cards. All right, please keep the emails coming to info at OregonRLA.org. Let us know not only your government affairs questions, but also your opinions and what's going on in your area. And save the date, mark your calendar, whatever you have to do to make sure that you're going to be at Taste Oregon. The annual Taste Oregon Legislative Reception will be Wednesday, February 12th, 2020, from 4.30 to 7 p.m. at the Salem Convention Center. That's a great opportunity for you as Orla members to mingle with your legislators and staff Get an informal opportunity to talk to them about the issues that matter most to you. And if you want to attend, donate, provide food, or be a sponsor, you can reach me at astley at oregonrla.org. If you like our Boiled Down podcast here at Orla, go ahead and give us a rating. Whatever app you use to download and listen to your podcasts, it does help other people find us, and we appreciate it. I'd like to say thank you again to Ruth Miles and Trevor Leahy of the Oregon Secretary of State's Office of Small Business Assistance, and to you for joining me today. I'm your host, Greg Astley, Director of Government Affairs for Orla. Thanks for listening.